I'm Matt. Hey, I'm Steve. Hey, I'm John. This is the Sober Friends Podcast. We're here for the sober curious, the new guy, and the old timer. Here to talk about the stuff anyone looking to live alcohol-free has to face day to day, and how we overcame those struggles. We speak for no 12-step group, but we do try to remain anonymous. You're not alone. This is the Sober Friends Podcast. I think it's worth starting with a prayer, serenity prayer. I need it. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Here's what I can't change. My wife is going to start the laundry on the other side of this microphone every single time I do a podcast, and that thing is running right now. (laughs) We never do laundry until 10 minutes before podcast time. I don't know what the deal is. I've given up. She's not doing it on purpose. Someone's change is loose in 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 the dryer, so it's really banging hard. Well, the good news here is it's just the dryer. When it's the washing machine, that thing whips up like a storm and goes right through the wall. I have to change. I change microphones. I'm not using the microphone that I love to use, but this is fine. It's my own resentment here. Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. We have a guest today. Greg Champion is with us. You have likely heard Greg Champion on other podcasts. He recently celebrated 28 years sobriety. Uh, he is a TEDx speaker. He is heavily involved in recovery. Greg, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. I, I feel like I, the title says it all, Sober Friends. You know. Oh, yeah. Uh, That's it, man. And it's, it's that simple, guys. I, I, uh, I, I really believe that uh, within the rooms of, of, of AA that I found my sober friends. And I know two things, that, that you guys uh, have my back and you're in my corner. And that wasn't always the case with some of my friend choices back in the day. So this is what's great about you, Greg. You're on a totally different coast than us. We, we are yep. on the East Coast. You're in the sunny West Coast, which is also causing another resentment as we have <laughs> a, such bad cold weather this week. But if I was out on the West Coast all by myself, I could go to a meeting. I could find somebody like you. And to me, you're a brother. Yeah. Right away. And it, you wouldn't have that in any other walk of life. But in the 12-step community, you can walk across the country to another country, walk into a meeting, and somebody's got your back because we have a commonality. Yeah. Amen. And especially, if, if, as you know, when, when meetings, when they say, hey, do we have any newcomers? Please stand up and identify. Do we have any visitors? And if Matt's visiting from Connecticut, and I spent some time in Connecticut, I'm going up to you after the meeting and go, hey, we're part of Connecticut. And before you know it, we're having a meeting after the meeting. Yeah, and right. I believe the meeting after the meeting is sometimes more important than the actual meeting, because what? What do you think about one hundred? Yeah, no, one hundred percent. I agree, Greg. Um, listen, I always said that anytime that I work with another alcoholic, um, first of all, I always try to pick up people and take them to meetings with me. Right? I have guys that you know, and if I know somebody doesn't have a car, they don't drive, I pick them up, I take them to meetings. I always want to have that meeting before the meeting or that meeting after the meeting. You know. Um, yeah. You know, when I was early in sobriety, my sponsor would would pick me up, and we'd go to meetings all over the place, right? And we'd we'd be gone for four or five hours, right? Um, you know, talking in the car, maybe getting a bite to eat, go to a meeting somewhere. You know, in Connecticut's a small state, but still, drive an hour, an hour and a half to a meeting, go to a meeting, drive home. Um, and we had a thing. It's it's interesting you say that. We have this thing that if we go to a meeting with a bunch of guys, if you don't get a chance to share in that meeting, you share in the 
car on the way home. Right. You know, so it's a way to get everybody still talking about the meeting. You know, Steve, I, I love that sharing after the meeting in the car. I, you know, there's sometimes you have these um, um, involuntary sharing meetings, right? So that the speaker yeah. picks you, right? Right. And what I do is as it's going around, I'm like, oh, I like a little bit of that. I'm, 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 I'm going to chime in on that. I, I start preparing my share, right? <laughs> and and, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm logging everything, right? And it's going to be the best three-minute share you've ever heard, right? <laughs> right. And yeah. then all of a sudden... Yeah. Ready? And then all of a sudden the, the guy says, oh, we're, we've now run out of time. We're going to turn it back over to the secretary. Right. And you're sitting there going, you didn't call me. You didn't call me. Right. I, I, and I would have, Matt, I, I'd have resentments just like you brought up, little mini resentments. But then, I, but then I thought about this. An old timer pulled me aside and he says, Greg, when you're putting your thoughts together about what you're going to share, you're telling the universe to share. Right. Yeah. And that set me free. That set me free from the meeting resentment. I'm not getting called on because when I am putting my share together, it's set up and ready to go. It may not go out, but guess what? The universe heard it. Yeah. And, and ever since I got that bit of news, I'm like, okay, I'm good. I'm good. I try and share upfront at meetings. And the reason I do that is I find myself not listening because I'm thinking about what I want to say. So if I get my share in right up front, I don't have time to really think about it. And then I can be present the rest of the meeting. I don't have the pressure of, hey, I've said my piece. If it's just our Monday night meeting is notorious for we have to pull teeth sometimes. And there's okay. some of us who always share. It's like, I'm sick of this uncomfortability. But I like to just get that out of the way so I can be present because I can get stuck thinking about things in my head. Steve, what do you do in meetings up front or at the back end? Um, I sort of just go with the flow. It, you know, it all depends. I sort of wait for the topic to go, um, you know, and then if there's something I feel that I need to share, or something I have to share, or I need to share on, um, then then I'll then I'll pipe in. Um, but typically, it all depends on me. Like I said, our Monday night meeting, uh, Matt and I both go to. It's yeah, it's a it's a big book meeting where we go through the big book, and um, sometimes sometimes it can be challenging to get people to share. Um, and I love that meeting. I love to share at that meeting when I can. I run, we, we zoom that meeting and I run the zoom part of it. So I do a bunch of service there. Is, is that um, a SAG or a, or a mixed meeting? No, mixed meeting. Okay. And then we do a Friday night meeting that I go to at that same, it just happens to be the same location, which is the stag. It's a, it's a men's meeting. Um, and that one is again, it, that's a meeting that's just like you, Greg. Um, you know, I have a relapse in my, in my story. And when I came back to the, to the rooms, I went to that meeting and I knew that the guys who were in that meeting 10 years ago when I left would still be there. I knew that. Right. And I walked into that meeting and I say that that meeting saved my life twice. Um, because you know, those are the guys, like you said, you, you form, and I tell this to anybody I might work with, you form a connection with a group of guys and they have to be your guys not my guys they're your guys. And you get that comfortability with those people. And those are the people that you can depend on and call on and do what you need to do with, you know? Yeah. And that was my group. That was my group. I sometimes refer to it as the locker room. Yeah. Like, Many of us were, played sports as kids, and one of the things yeah. we lost along the way was that that tightness um, yeah, of team. I agree. You know, and and so what we reacquire in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous is our locker room. 
Expe- yeah, especially in your men's meeting, uh, your your single yep. your single sex meeting, like that. That's where it really is. And I always say to every male that I work with, every I only work with males, but to every guy I work with, that you need a men's meeting. You can come to mine if that oh, works yeah. for you, fine. You know, if yeah. mine works for you, fine. Um, yeah. It's a tough meeting, but people will call you on your shit. They're not going to let right. you walk. You know, men get men sober, women get women sober. That, that's I one agree. of my early day mantras. Um, yeah, you can figure out all the fireworks somewhere down the road, but it's certainly going to be in year one, you know? Yeah, I, I agree. No, I like those, uh, same gender meetings just because I don't care how old, you know, it could be a 60 year old lady who's in those meetings. Women are distracting to me. If there's one or two women, I'm noticing they're there. And that's a distraction that is not in the way when I'm at a men's meeting. And also I'm less inhibited. Men have commonalities, women have commonalities, and I want to be respectful of the women if I'm in a mixed meeting. I'm going to behave myself. But it is good to have that outlet of men only and not have that distraction there. I um, I, I agree with both you gentlemen uh, wholeheartedly. I, I, I will say that a, a few years ago, my sponsor pulled me aside, and um, I do an exercise every, every year. I put a, a word on a Post-it that I want to work on. So like honesty or trust or procrastination. And I put it where I brush my teeth. And so I was telling him this exercise and he says, you know what? You need to put listening down. I said, listening? Why? He's like, I've been to your office. You don't listen to any of your employees. You don't listen to your wife. You don't listen to your daughters, you know, and, and you got to work on listening. And I thought to myself, okay. And he's like, listen, and you really got to start listening to women. They make up more than 50% of the planet. You know, you got to get along with them. But he also said this, I want you to do that. So I, I did put listening up there. But he also says, I want you to go to the women's morning meeting. And I want you to listen, not the women's morning meeting, the mixed meeting at 830 in the morning out here. And I said, why? You, you told me men get men sober, you know, men stags. And he says, hey, listen, you got 15 years of sobriety. You need some more work. He's like, you go to this mixed meeting because I want you to hear women share their pain, their shame, their trauma, and their drama. And what will happen is you will become a better listener by listening to these shares. And I thought to myself, I took sponsored direction, and I went, and I'm telling you, it was a complete breakthrough. My, my relationships at work with women improved, certainly at home improved, um, my daughters, a better connection and just by hearing what women, they go through a different story than us, you know, yeah. and at least once a week for that year, I was downloaded with some new software, as my sponsor says. That That's a great story. And that's a great succession. We talk on this podcast regularly that since COVID, um, it seems like the women of our area have gone somewhere else either they're not going or maybe they're sticking with uh women meetings but we just don't see the women participation that we used to this monday night meeting that uh matt and i talk about used to have you know a good probably dozen to 15 women who would come through it not there every week but they would regularly come to this meeting um probably about 40 percent women yeah, and and we and then we are now down to one woman who comes all the time, and then other women have started to show up, right? And I've always talked to that one woman. It's been a different woman, but like, thanks for hanging around, because if a woman shows up to this meeting and there's no women, she's never coming back, right? She's never coming back to this meeting. And I love hearing women share. 
I love hearing when women share because I agree. I get a different feeling and a different message that when women share than when, when men share. And plus, it reminds me of who I was back when I was drinking. Steve, 1,000%. My, my whole relationship has changed with women uh, based upon my own recovery. But really, i got to be honest, by having daughters. I have yeah. three daughters. And let me tell you, like, I, I'm present. I'm, I'm, I'm their warrior. I, I educate them every way I can. They're driving cars. They're, you know, we're doing yeah. guy stuff, you know? Right. Um, and, and I look at it, I look like, okay, God, I get it. I get it. I, I, you know, my past is my past and you're giving me three daughters. I get it. But what I hope to do is just really be one of those present fathers that is, um, can be the first guy they fall in love with. So then they know what to fall in love with down the road. Yeah. How nice is that? Being an example. I would say one of the greatest gifts I have from recovery is empathy and being present. I think listening and being present go hand in hand. I was listening to another podcast today that hit me right across the head. It's with Kara Swisher, who is one of the foremost tech reporters in the country. She does this fabulous podcast, and she was talking about the, the Club Q shooting and yep. she's lesbian. And she said, I never have ever felt comfortable being gay. And I look at somebody like that who is wildly successful. She's interviewed Elon Musk, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates. This is top of that profession. And to hear somebody that successful to say, I have never felt safe tells me a lot because I don't live that life and I do feel safe. And I look at that, I'm like, there's something for me to learn there. And sometimes it is somebody who is not living that life who has to speak up for somebody like that. Right. And I think that's applicable to recovery. When you when you hear somebody without your life story who might have more challenges from you, it's an opportunity to thank your blessing, an opportunity to step up and say, hey, I need to help here. I need to be the one to stand up. And I would never have thought that way unless I learned right. the 12 steps. The, the disease of alcoholism is colorless, yeah. right? Choose, yeah. Doesn't choose religion. Absolutely. You know, and you ready for this? It's undefeated. Right. It's, it's like getting in the ring with Tyson, Sugar Ray Leonard, and Muhammad Ali. You're not going to win. And, yeah. and I just try to tell people that I work with who come back time and time again, what's going to happen is that you're going to relapse but the progression of your disease is also proceeded. So guess what? Your relapse is going to be much more powerful, longer jail sentence, lose your wife this time. And it just sits there and waits and waits and waits. And um, that's why it's undefeated. It, it, it is, it is um, something that we, we, you know, again, that's why how we gather years. We gather years one day at a time. It's the only way to gather time. You know, and I, I've told this before, and I'll just tell you this little piece. Um, you know, I relapsed in 2009, and I had gone 14 years without drinking. There weren't all good years, but I wasn't drinking. And I was a closet drinker. I was I hid my drinking. And I always tell you, I, I, I relapsed in October of 2009, and by December of that year, I was drinking alone in my basement, right? And that's how quick it turned on me. That's how fast I got back to where I was, right? I mean, it took me, yeah. it took me 40 years to get there the first time. It took me less than three months to get there the second time, yep. you know? So, um, yeah, I mean, that... You know, that's something that 
I'll never forget like how quickly I got there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, it took me a while to get back, but once I got back, I was, I was ready to do the work. I, I also, I also say this, Steve, I, I, I try to, you know, a lot of times people get, they, they go out on day 364 or they go out on day, on day yeah. 366. It always yeah. baffles me. Like you were just about to get a year or you just got a year. And, and when people relapse, here's what I tell them. I said, look, I said, your, your relapse is like a salt shaker. And what I mean is the salt shaker has spilt on the table, right? And the salt is out on the table. But the sooner you pick it up, the more of the salt remains in there. And if you have been going to AA and have a sponsor and a home group, if you're only out on a four-day bender, much of the salt's still in there. And so just be be easy on yourself, you know, that that these people that are having relapses, that that you guys are salt shakers. Just pick the salt shaker up, get back in the rooms, Keep yep. doing what you're doing. I know it feels uneasy. Trust me. I, I know you feel like we're judging you, but we can't judge you because we're all scoundrels. You know, yeah. we can't throw rocks at glass houses. Right. No way. I agree. Yeah. I learn yeah. from those people. I want to know what happened. And yeah. I also look at the pain yeah. when I see them come back and say, I don't want to experience that. I need to see it. I know of a guy who was a day 364 relapser for years and years and years. And the root cause was he didn't feel he was worth it. So he could never get to a year. And that's one of those things I want to learn more and I want to see it. So yeah. I don't have to experience it. Sure. So, Greg, we we know, you know, we're doing this one a little bit backwards. So we know what it's like now for you. Right. You got a great life. You yeah. got great kids. You live you live out in great weather. All these good things. Um, we we were talking a little bit before we started and you were telling us a little bit about, the, oh, yeah, I know Connecticut. I had some experiences in Connecticut. So tell us what happened. Tell us how you got there. Tell us a little bit about the beginning, where you started um, so that we could patch it through to where you are today. Yeah. So, um like we talked about earlier, I, I just celebrated 28 years. Um, nice. And I, yeah. and I do have, I do have a, a really good life, but it's taken me 28 years to accomplish that because the old Greg, the animal Greg, the, the disconnected Greg, the shy, the, um, the sensitive Greg um, love shortcuts. Um, and, and one of those shortcuts came in my twenties where um, I had a college degree um, I was uh, working at, as an overnight tech in um, in a radio or TV station, and um, you know I had the opportunity to uh, sell drugs, and and I was uh, selling pot all over the country, and one of my biggest supply chains was um, Bradley Airport, Hartford, Connecticut, <laughs> and and and, um, and I had a pretty good thing going for a while, but one of two things happened. One gentleman, I'm a shitty drug dealer. Um, I don't cross my T's. I don't dot my eyes. I have ADD, and I watch too many movies that, uh, that 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 think that that's how packaging drugs goes. And number two is that I had so much shame, so much shame, that each time I had to get on a flight to fly stuff to Connecticut, it was it went from two drinks to six drinks to sixteen drinks. It went from drinks to pot to coke to I one time dropped a hit of acid to fly a flight across the way just so I could medicate. Um, and, and doing that, I became sloppy and I eventually got caught uh, with 50 pounds of pot. And um, the judge says to me, 
you know, hey, kid, you have a college degree. You went to Catholic private school. You're, you're, you have World War II generation parents. Your last name is Champion. You know, like, what, what are you doing here? How, how did this happen? And I said, I don't know. And I've heard so many newcomers and so many sponsees say, I don't know. Because when you're in that shame-filled, animalistic, addicted life, you're not, you're not who you are. Like the soul of Greg Champion was not that. That was the dark, what I call Greg the asshole. And he was around for about seven years, from age 17 to age 25. And so the judge says, well, here's what I do know, son. If I see you in my courtroom um, in the next uh, six months, I'm going to give you the five years of prison hanging over your head. And so I was scared. I went home. A few days passed. And then on day 18, I got my sports car. I had six moose heads, uh, a couple blunts, a couple bindles of Coke on me. And I was going to the party of the year. And by this time, gentlemen, my high school friends had left me. My college friends wanted nothing right. to do with me because I was, I was the dark storm over here. You know, I was hanging out with lower companions. I always say I was hanging out with drug dealers and girls I couldn't bring home to mom. And, um, and so I go to this party of the year and I don't know anybody, but I have to be there because I'm a people pleaser too. I love people pleasing. Oh, I can and, identify with that. And, and so this guy comes up, um, Matt looks like you, Hey, got any, got any blow on you? Of course. Let's go. We went down the stairs out to the parking lot into my little sports car. I pull out my Duran Duran CD case just to kind of date you a music line. <laughs> right, right, right. I slice up two big fat lines and I go like this. And then he goes like this, San Diego Police Department. And boom, I have been busted majorly in 18 days apart. And, um, and, and really, I'll, I want to back up a little bit. It, you know, Steve, you asked me, how did it all start? Well, I was an alcoholic before I even took my first drink. And the reason why I can say that is my father was killed in a drunk on drunk car crash when I was four years old. And I immediately felt different. I felt weird. I felt strange. I felt like you had a dad, you had a dad. I didn't have a dad. And what came up for me were four things or three things I became addicted to. One was anger. Oh, you're going to tease me because I don't have a dad? Bam, smack you in the face. You're going to tease me because I have... I have a hole in my shoe because that's all my mom can afford. I'm going to smack you in the right. face. Number two is I love fantasy. In order for me to escape from the anger, I was a $6 million man. I was Luke Skywalker. I was smoking the Bandit. And number three, I had blonde hair, blue eyes. I was this cute little kid. Women fawned on me from the time I came out of the, uh, out of the, out of the crib. And I love that female attention. And that supplied me until five years old, six years old, seven, until guess what? Puberty showed up. And I'm like, oh, hey, what's this going on here? Yeah. And, and by that time, I, I was I, growing up in San Diego, and I was, puberty was happening. I was going into my freshman year of high school, right, which I, the peer comes to peer pressure. And guess what's available? Booze, pot, cocaine. And I just go, give me those three. And so I took the three emotional addictions out and I just hooked on to booze, pot, and cocaine. 
Yeah, I see at least a bunch of addictions there growing up. So my father was an alcoholic. I didn't see him since 1982, so he was not part of my life. I can so identify with you saying there, I don't have a dad. I, I did, to this day, I really don't have a concept of what having a father of your own means for you. And that was a tough conversation each year, writing down all the paperwork first day of school about, you know, who is your dad? Where does he work? And I had teachers bring it back when I didn't know what it was. Well, you must know where your dad is. You know, he's your dad. And and having that uncomfortable conversation of, I don't know where he is. I don't know where he works. I don't know his phone number. And being in a well-to-do town where I was the only one like that, that was a horrible feeling. And the thing is, teachers are naive. They're shame. Yes. You know, I, I, yeah. I had a speech impediment as a kid. I couldn't, I couldn't say my, um, my THs. It sounded like an F. And I'd be sitting in class, third grade, and someone would come tap me on the shoulder and say, hey, we need to have you come do speech therapy. And meanwhile, the whole class turns and looks at you as, you, as if you're being led off to the guillotine, you know? Yeah. And, 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 and like, like, I had friends who, who read slow. They had high IQs, but they read slow. But, like, we've done so much shaming of, of, of our youth year after year that I really hope that, that, you know, we get better at not doing that. So, like the teacher saying to you, you're, you're, you, you probably did not look forward to the first day of school. Most oh, kids it was look horrible. Back. Right? Right, Matt? You did it. You're like, oh, didn't. God. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to have to write down how I'm different than you. Schools yep. are much different now. My daughter yep. has pretty severe dyslexia. And all of the things that they have to help her through are much different. She doesn't have a scarlet letter on her. She has people who are there to support her. And she feels comfortable with those support people. She struggles with feeling less than, but she's not. I just had a conversation where she was trying to tell me a story. I'm like, I can see you got it in your head. It just doesn't come out through your speech. But she's yeah. got it there. It's that whole, she's smart. She's got this stuff here. It's about how do I connect it from my head out through my mouth? So I can tell from that experience, it's not like that. They don't shame kids anymore. Yeah. But so it, there was yeah. no, there was like no social skills back in the day. Yeah. No, I was pulled out too for, I, I still don't say my R's correctly. And, uh, but I, same thing. Uh, Greg, same thing. I can remember being pulled out probably in fifth grade, right? Maybe yeah. fourth grade, right? Where I was old enough to know better and, yeah. and being pulled out. And then, believe this or not, I mean, I was always this little chubby kid. In high school, they pulled me out and sent me to the nurse's office to weigh me. Oh, Imagine, I mean, can you can you imagine wow. be, being mortifying, po- right? To weigh me and trying to encourage they, their heart was in the right place, trying to encourage me. Hey, you know, try to do this, you know, whatever it is. But can you imagine? Oh, they're taking all the fat kids out and sending them down to the nurse's office. Like unbelievable. Uh, and it's no wonder why. Same thing. I got to high school yeah. and it's like, oh yeah, pot. Oh, give me pot. I mean, pot was so much easier for me to find back then than booze. It was like. Oh yeah, give me you know pot. Sure, I'll smoke all the pot. I smoked so much pot during high school. It's amazing that I that I survived it. But um, but yeah, it was the same thing. Like oh, let me hide all this shame, all this fear, all this stuff. And uh, and just like you, I grew up in an alcoholic family. Like Matt, you know, my mom was an alcoholic, and and uh, again, even that shame, I, I I didn't realize it then. But I never brought my friends home to my house. Never, ever, ever brought my friends home because my house I'm was. My, my house was an alcoholic house, and it was always in disarray. It was always filthy, you know, all, all these things, all these things that uh, we grew up with. So go ahead, Kieran. So, you're, so you, you get all this stuff. You get busted. 
so so basically, um, you know, I'm now um, th th it's the next morning. I, I'm in this jail cell in a in the fetal position, and um, well, let me just kind of back up a little bit more, just because I got to get so. Yeah, go um, my mom. My, my mom did remarry. She married uh, a, a gentleman who was on Omaha Beach on D-Day. Um, took that Army experience in the GI Bill. Went to Northwestern and got a degree in engineering. Um, married and loved my mom, which which was great to watch because she deserves somebody good. He taught me how to tie a tie, shave my face, open doors for women. That greatest generational stuff. But I think. A lot of generations these days kind of need that stuff, but yeah. that's for another podcast. Um, and then the best thing he did, gentlemen, is he brought 17 years of AA sobriety into our house. Oh, wow. Right? And so I had this great, and also he became my little league coach. He became my Pop Warner coach. So I, I had my dad, you know, I had this, and he was a great stepdad, right? And of course, I would rear up because the alcoholism had already left the station on me. And he would see that I would drink on a Friday night and puke all day Saturday. And he knew exactly what was going on. Mm -hmm. you know. Um, and I remember as I was going from high school to college, he pulled me aside and he says, hey, I think you have a drinking problem. You know, I said, no, 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 I'm, I'm picking a good school. You'll see. Well, I picked Arizona State University. <laughs> right? right? Big party right? school. Number one drinking school in the country. You know, oh, yeah. so, so, so I wasn't blowing smoke up his ass. So. So basically what happened was I'm in, I, 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 I'm in this jail cell and it's real quiet. It's probably 5.45 in the morning and I'm in the fetal position and that demoralization they talk about in the big book. I, I, if you open up demoralization, my picture is there that day. <laughs> yeah. and, and then I hear this voice from across the room say, Greg, there's a better way. Greg, there's a better way. And there's no one else in the cell. It's just me and a guard that's down over here. And it says, call your mother. Call your mother. And I'm like, call my mother? What the hell? Well, I end up calling my mother, who was in semi-retirement and really not ready for a phone call like this. And I call her and I tell her what happened. And she says, Gregory? Because all moms call us by our full names when we're in Right. Course, I agree. Right? I agree. Right, Stephen? Right, Matthew? Right. Right. Um, yeah. So Gregory, I want you to go to church. You want me to go to church? Yeah. She goes, I want you to go to church. You're, you're going to find your answer there. I said, all right. So with Catholic guilt put on me, I, I found, I got out of school. I got out of the jail that day. That night I found a six o'clock mass. I went to it. And after the mass, the priest says, Hey, tonight we're going to have confession. I got three doors over here and three doors over here. Pick a door and go confess. And God is my witness, Matt and Steve. Here's my thought. I'm going to go confess so I can go out tonight. Yeah, right. Oh, it doesn't Good alcoholic me. thinking. Absolutely. Right? Oh, clean the slate. Exactly. Clean the yeah. slate so I can start over. Yeah, right. Yep. <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. But instead, I, I chose door number two, and I walk in, and there's this beautiful older man. It kind of looks like Ronald Reagan with white gray hair. And he has a white cloak and laser blue eyes, and he has an Irish accent. And in the 28 years of me telling this story, I've never been able to, to, to nail an Irish accent, so I'll stay away from it. <laughs> but he says, son, sit and tell me your sins. And it's not like the confession's old school with this thing, right? You're, you're literally right mm -hmm. close. With I sit down and I said, father, when I smoke a lot of pot, I show up on Christmas on December 27th. 
when I drink a lot of beer and wine and whiskey, I go into bars and I hurt people. When I do lots of cocaine, I date three women at the same time. And when I do all three of those, I fly large amounts of marijuana to the East Coast. And he looked at me and he said, son, do you think you have a problem with drugs and alcohol? No. Here I am lying to a priest. Here I am lying to a priest in, in a confessional. And then he looks at me like all our good sponsors do with that look of, listen, asshole, you better tell me the truth. Right. And he points his finger and he says, like that. And I said, you know what, Father? You're the second man in my life to ever tell, to ask me that. And he goes, well, who was the first? I said, Walt Janicki, my stepfather. He reaches across, grabs my hand, and goes, I was Walt Janicki's first sponsor. Oh, my goodness. Wow. <laughs> and uh, what I can tell, gentlemen, is that in every life, there's a why in the road. And this is the biggest why in the road for me. Because I finally paused. I did the AA pause. And I said, Greg, whatever this man says to do next, you're going to do. And here's what he said. He said, son, your sins don't belong here. They belong four blocks up at the Alano Club. And there happens to be an AA meeting starting at 7.30, and I think you should go. And so I got his number on a piece of paper. I folded it up, put it in my pocket, went up there, and that was on 11-7-1994. And I've been sober ever since. That's incredible. That I is. think about, to me, nine out of ten people would have gone through that and still never would have made it to the Elano Club. That's how powerful this is. Yet there was something within you to, in that moment to say, yep, I'm going to wait to 7.30. We have a, we have a guy out here. He, he lives down south now, but his saying was, is it odd or is it God? Right? And that's that thing. Is it odd that that guy was thing or is it God? And I think, and so, I think we know, I think we know the answer, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and, and so, it, you know, here was my mother who was scared. Just go to church. Right. Right. I, I listened to a mother. I, I go there and a the man of the cloth says, Hey, your solution's not here. It's four blocks right. up. Right. Because it was the solution for him. And then here's the cool part. I open up the number the next day to call him. His name is Father Bill Wilson. <laughs> wow. But, you know, you can, you know, you can Google yeah. him. He's in La Jolla. Yeah. Father Bill Wilson. And I'm sitting there going, well, I know that name because you just know that right. name. And yeah. so I go see Father Bill. And he says, look, I'm going to be your temporary sponsor. Here's what you're going to do. You're not going to drink or use no matter what. You're going to go to 90 meetings in 90 days. You're going to take boxing lessons. Wow. Boxing lessons. I guess, yeah, because you, when you do the first two, you're going to have so much resentment and anger, you got to put it somewhere. And, and, and what I can tell you is that when I work with clients or mentees or sponsees, it's the same advice I give them. We're not going to drink or use no matter what. We're going to go to 90 meetings in 90 days, and you're going to do some form of exercise. And as I left his office, he says, how many times have you been arrested? I said, eight in two years. He looked at me, paused, and he says, look, Greg plus drugs and alcohol equals jail. Why don't you take drugs and alcohol out of the equation and you'll never go back to jail? And so, gentlemen, in 28 years of sobriety, how many times have I been to jail? All right. Zero. Yeah. And so what I want to say to your listeners is whatever your jail is, whether it's a bad relationship, codependency, you know, 
Um, you got a, a, a bankruptcy. You, you got a shitty boss. You got a shitty marriage. If you take drugs and alcohol out, what you will get is clarity. So you don't have to go to your version of jail. And, and I will say that's probably the greatest gift that, that sobriety has given me is clarity. Like I'm 53 years old. Okay. I go to my high school reunions. My wife goes, who are these 70 year olds you're hanging out with? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. Because they've been doing this, right. all the, you know? And what I want to say, I have a great memory. I have clarity. I have almost Jedi like intuition. And it's all because of Alcoholics Anonymous and the principles that I've put in my life beyond step one, the other 11 steps. Right. You know, I, I, I always tell you, you'll never stay sober if you don't do step four and five. Never. Yeah. I don't know anybody who stays sober, doesn't do step yeah. four and five. I, 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 um, I battled with that uh, my first three years. I ran, 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 ran. And finally, uh, in my fourth year, a guy shared from the podium my exact story. And I go, okay, you're the guy. And then we went for a walk and it all I got it all out. Step six for me, gentlemen, is character defects. As outlined in the 12 and 12 on page 48, where it talks about the seven sins. Now, you guys must be good Catholic boys or good Christian boys from from the Connecticut, yes? Oh, I most certainly am. Absolutely. Right? So you know the seven sins. Mm-hmm. So what he said, what, what my sponsor said, says pick three of them. There's your core character defects. And for me, lust, pride, and anger. I've been lustful since I've been four years old. I've been angry since I've been four years old. And I've been prideful since I've been four years old. Well, the same thing's true when I'm 53. And whether I'm drunk or sober, I got to continue to work on this. And this is how I work on them, guys. I take those character defects and I plug them into step one. I'm powerless over lust and my life becomes unmanageable. I'm powerless over pride and my life becomes unmanageable. I'm powerless over anger. And guess what? I go work those character defects like I worked the original step that got me into the, into the program. Because what I'm on a path for now is not so much sobriety, gentlemen, but recovery. Recovery from, from um, having a neighbor be inappropriate with me when I was eight years old from having a dad die and abandon me when I was four to not having financial success until who knows when, but like a lot of shame stuff. And I, and I just simply say that, that for me, um, sobriety was the ticket to the show, but the band hadn't even started to play yet. And what I would say is like, I would have be struggling in my marriage and Steve, I'd be sitting next to you going, Man, I can't get my wife back in the boat. I can't get my wife in the back of the boat. And it's Steve, if you would say to me, hey, I know this great marriage therapist. You should go see her. I would take your suggestion because guess what? Me listening to a 48-year-old dentist about my marriage is probably not a good thing to listen to. Right. Right. And so what I've said is Alcoholics Anonymous has opened so many doors for me to remain willing to be willing to keep putting tools in my tool belt. And when people say, Greg, how do you get 28 years? I've remained willing to be willing, teachable, humble. Greg, I just want to, I just want to stop here because I've, we've done a bunch of these podcasts and I've been in rooms for, for quite a few years, not quite as long as you, but, um, but I've never heard that about stick six, about step six and your character defects, about taking them back and working them individually through the steps. 
And for our listeners out there, if you are part of a 12-step program, I want you to think about that for a minute. That when you struggle with something, and I, and I mean this for me, I'm, like, I'm talking to myself here. To, to take that thing and put it up, just like you said, where you brush your teeth or somewhere you can see it, and take that thing and work it back through those 12 steps. Because that is our solution, right? That is our life skills solution um, if, if, in, in the rooms. We talk about it. It's not only, like you said, it's not only giving up alcohol. Um, you said it. I didn't, first time through, I didn't do four and five, and I drank again, right? It took me a long time to drink, but I drank again, and I had never done four and five. Um, yeah. So, you know, and when I came back, I realized that, first of all, I just realized that all the guys who I was looking at and hanging out, they seemed to have a pretty good life, and I had a pretty shitty life, you know? I had a pretty shitty life. My wife, you know, who... Luckily, I'm still married to, had gone to see a divorce attorney. Like, my life was just spiraling out of control. And I just finally realized that I was going to start doing stuff that, just like you said, that people told me to do, right? Other alcoholics, I had to do a bunch of these things, and I had to do something that we say around here all the time. I had to do a bunch of things that I did not want to do, right? I mean, you know, guys would tell me. Contrary action. Contrary action. it's It's really the bridge to success. Perf- perfectly stated. It really is. And we talk about this, especially in my Friday night men's meeting. It's like, that's our, that's our theme. It's like, we, we got sober by doing shit we didn't want to do. Plain and simple. Um, and, uh, but I, I really like that idea. Come back to it. It's like picking that character defect, saying you're powerless over it, and then working on it. Like we worked on everything else in our life. I think that's a beautiful way to put it. And I, re- I really thank you for that suggestion. Yeah, I've got it. This is something I want to work on further. I've done a little bit of this where I got to the root of one of my problems. I have a quick temper on certain things and I can react. And then it revolves with me having to backtrack and make an amends because I made a knee jerk reaction. I had to figure out what is this? And it's situations where I feel I'm being taken advantage of or I'm not being valued. And then I feel I have to lash out because if I don't, I'm getting steamrolled. And I had to turn back and say, what is this about? It's about me not feeling worth or or feeling less than. Mm -hmm. I looked at somebody, I saw a LinkedIn profile for somebody who was a peer of mine once, who's now at a vice president level, several Mm -hmm. levels above me. And the first thing I looked at is, how the hell did she get there? Why am I not there? I'm so much better. And I had to take a step back and say, all right, this is not the talk I want to have with myself because it's the it's the wet blanket. But what do I have in my life? I own my own house. I've got quite a bit of land, beautiful garden. I have three healthy kids. They all love me. My wife loves me. I have the means to do this podcast. I have a job <laughs> where I am valued. Why do I need that? Now, it's, I'm not going to shut myself off from career growth, but why do I feel I have to be like that person? I don't know what her life is like right now. She may not have as good quality of life, even though she has the status, but why can't I be comfortable where I am in the moment and say, this is enough for me? That's, I look at that as part of my own addiction, that I need more than what I have. It's well, never good enough. Matt? If we use the seven sins, one of your character defects that I'm seeing by this story is envy. Oh yeah, absolutely. Envy. And so that in the in, in the AA talk, we call that compare and despair, right? Mm-hmm. 
You're going to compare your apples to her oranges, and you're going to be the one with sour grapes. But let me give you a little story. I was in a men's stag about five years ago, and um, this guy who comes in about three years, and he's kind of working his way up the corporate ladder. And we have a couple CEOs over here and some celebrities, and he's and he leans over to me and he goes, he goes, I don't know if I should be in this meeting. I said, why? He's like, well, you, know, you got so and so there. And then I said, let me tell you something. Let me tell you the way God works. Listen. The fat guy has a hot wife. The good looking guy has no money. And the rich guy's got a small dick. It's all even. Listen, <laughs> <Right. laughs> that's, uh, that's, that's it. And... <laughs> so, so, so Matt, it's all even. It's all just going to yeah. trust the universe. It's all even, right. you know, because that woman has that job, but she does not have land. She does not have a house. She does not have three. Like, like it's, it's even. You just have to trust me on this one, brother. It's even. No, that's a great point, especially out there. I, I know some people. We know some guys. Actually, one of our uh, guys from our Friday night moved, moved out west, moved out to California. And he used to come back and say, like, sit, just like he's like, he would sit in meetings and have all these celebrities and famous people. And, 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 you know, and it took him a while to sort of just realize, like, hey, you know, we're just, <laughs> we're all here for the same reason, right? You know, if, if obviously, you know, it just shows you that alcohol doesn't discriminate. Um, no matter who you are, if you if you're one of us, then you're one of us, and uh, and if it gets you, it gets you. So um, it's always interesting. Listen, I when you know, I sponsor people who are way above me, uh, sc- uh, scholarly, right? Um, yep. They have much more education. They have doctorates. They, and really, and and I'm their sponsor. And I always and I remember when I first started doing that kind of stuff. Like, what? Who me? And then, but I, but then I realized like I had something that I could offer them, right? I had something that I could offer them, and now today I'm less, you know, much less intimidated. And I realize if you show up in our rooms, then you're one of us, and that we relate on that level. Maybe not outside of that level, but on that level, we relate. Yeah, I look at I, I look at a guy I know who shows up to every meeting. He's always got paint on him because he works with his hands. He's recently been driving a school bus. This is as blue collar as blue collar could be. And I'm, I'm, I'm not that, uh, I, I can't, I can't do, I can't fix anything without watching YouTube 20 times. <laughs> and there is this person in terms of his sobriety is, has a wealth amount far greater. I look at somebody yeah. like that and I see what comes out of his mouth, not how he looks. And I'm like, that's what I want. I want that peace of mind. The, the, the idea that he is, he has enough wherewithal to call three people every single day. He, and, and it's not like I call three numbers. I call until I get three people. And he has the discipline to do this every single day. And I'm not great with that. But I'm like, if he can do it, I've got a goal set towards that. That is richness and sobriety, regardless of what his pocketbook might look like. So how has this affected your family? I see you on Instagram, and it is like nothing but you and your girls. How has this led to you being better with your family? So first of all, uh, you know, I'll just I'll start with my wife. I have, I have a, a great wife. She's a Chicago girl who came out west. And, um, you know, her father was an alcoholic. Her first husband was an alcoholic. And. There's other people in her, you know, so she's been around that guy. And I was her first sober recovering alcoholic. So, so she was destined to end up with one of us, if you know what I mean. Um, and in our marriage, we've, we've had a couple of times where we got separated, 
and it got ugly. And and I was really scared that that, that I was going to lose that that family dynamic that I that I so hard worked for, you know. Um, and it was um, the ism had shown up both in her and me. I was a workaholic, and she was a worryaholic. <laughs> and um, you know. And, and so what I will say is, you know, we, she went to Al-Anon and that was a black belt Al-Anon. Um, you know, I'm over in my men's group getting it. And, and part of my deal is I, I, I built this board of directors, guys. I have three guys who sit on my board of directors. They have long-term sobriety, long-term business success and long-term marriages. But I also have three women who sit on my board of directors who have those same criteria. And when I get squirrely or when I get to one of those emotional angsts, I run my shit by these people. And I take their advice and their suggestion. So with my wife, you know, definitely those six people helped me around my wife. And with my girls, I'll tell you a couple of stories. One is that, um, um, you know, my oldest is a natural born leader. Like it, it is unbelievable. I get parents pull me aside all the time. Say, Where does she get this? I don't know what you guys are doing at home is what I hear from other mothers, you know? And I don't, I don't know what we're doing at home. What I think we're doing at home is we have honest, transparent, authentic. They This last Friday, they came to a meeting and gave me a cake, right? And they understand that if I go to a meeting at 7 a.m. for the next 16 hours, Papa's going to be pretty okay, you know? So they understand the power of the community and that, that being having sober friends. But this really tells the tale. So about six months ago, my youngest is going um, – to Big Bear for a camping trip. And she says, Papa, can we run down to the store and get some s'more stuff? So graham crackers and chocolates and marshmallows. I said, sure, let's go down to the store. We go down to the store, we pick up the stuff. We start going up the hill. And I'm not kidding you, out of the blue, guys, she goes, Papa, have you ever been arrested? <laughs> and I'm like, wow. oh boy, red alert, red alert. She's nine yeah. years old. What do I say? Yeah. And I just go, You've always spoke to these girls as adults, you know, they, you know, just bring it. And so I turned to her and go, yeah, I've been arrested eight times, eight times. And I said, but I said, Annabelle, but that's when that was 28 years ago in a galaxy far, far away, you know? And, and I, I say to her, you know, I got arrested for being young and dumb is basically what I said. But I said to her, I said, but each time I got arrested, drugs and alcohol were in play. She ponders it. She looks forward. Then she reaches over, grabs my hand, and she goes, Papa, thank God you're sober. Wow, how beautiful that is. That's yeah. a great lesson. And, and, and what I'll say, guys, is, is more importantly, I think they see how other parents act and react, right? They see the drunk wine mom. They see the... Right. The dad who plays golf all day, Saturday and Sunday, even though he hasn't seen his kids Monday through Friday. Right. And they're like, I don't want any of that, you know? Yeah. And so I will tell you my job with my three daughters is this gentlemen is I want to keep their drama, trauma, pain, and shame somewhere between a zero and two on a scale of, of zero and 10. If I do that for 18 years, pretty good chance that they won't be in a room like ours. Because my trauma, drama, shame was somewhere around a seven, eight, nine, and sometimes 11. And look where so, I ended up. And what I can tell you is that through my own professional experience is that most people who are 
addicts or identify as alcoholics had some sort of childhood trauma, drama, pain, or shame. That was the catalyst to why they used booze and drugs as a solution for their pain. Right. I always said that I know how to fix my pain, right? One of the ways is to drink, right? I mean, that's yeah. that's a solution. It's not a good solution, it but it's the yeah. solution. Um, I've always said that. Like, yeah, I know how to fix this. Um, yeah. And, you know, and yeah, you know, I learned that it, there's other ways to fix it, too. Right. This is one of these shows where I didn't realize going in that the guest was there for me, not the other way around, that I'm actually the audience here, and I feel better having gone through this. So our guest this week was Greg Champion. If you're not following him on Instagram, do it now. He's got a great feed, and it is all family-focused. And I look at this, and I'm like, hot damn, I want to be like this as a dad. I undersell my own dad abilities. Greg, thank you for coming on and sharing your story, and I hope you listening to this you can identify with some of this stuff so you don't have to get into those jams. You can be successful like Greg, but you can take a detour around it if you make some different decisions. Greg, thank you for being on the show this week. Steve, Matt, thank you so much. And, and yeah. guess what? We're now sober friends. Yeah, we are. Absolutely. I yeah. get it. Yeah. Love if it. You ever so. make a West, if you ever make a West, I, I know the best meetings in, in Los Angeles to go. Sounds and good. I will drag you around with me. I I, oh, listen, I if, so I, if I if I come out Angeles. there, yeah, if I come out there, I will. I was there a couple of years ago for almost a week down in Huntington Beach, so I was out that way, right? Um, but if I ever get out there again, um, I will tell you that uh, I will look you up and, and we'll hit a meeting Please. for sure together. It'd be an honor to show you guys around. Yeah, okay. great. All right, everybody. All we'll right, see you next great week. show. Thanks. Thanks, thanks, Greg. Thanks, Matt. You made it this far into the podcast. That tells me you're a pretty big fan. If you like what we do and you find value in the podcast, consider a donation at buymeacoffee.com backslash soberfriendspod. Your donation keeps us on the air to help out the new guy and helps us defray some of our costs. If you find value in our podcast, please consider a donation at buymeacoffee.com slash soberfriendspod.